You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. In his 2014 book, No Place to Hide, Edward Snowden, the NSA, and the U.S. Surveillance State, Glenn Greenwald published photos of three TAO personnel intercepting the shipment of new Cisco routers en route to paying customers in Syria, inserting backdoor electronics into the device, and then shipping the modified routers to the intended destination. TAO stands for Tailored Access Unit, now called Computer Network Operations, and is the NSA's hacker group charged with penetrating the computers of foreign governments and other targets overseas for the purpose of cyber espionage. They are the yin to the Russian SVRs, Yang. The customer in this case was the Syrian Telecommunications Establishment, or STE, and they wanted to use the Cisco equipment to support the country's internet and wireless backbone. Greenwald got the photos from the Edward Snowden data dump. Snowden, for those of you that have lived under a rock for the past decade, is the former NSA contractor hired to administer the NSA's high-side networks. But he believed that the NSA was overstepping its legal authority to collect foreign intelligence. As the poster child for why we all need a zero-trust architecture, he logged into the NSA's high-side network, ran a web crawler that he purchased on the dark web for $100, and managed to abscond with some 1.5 million classified documents and then proceeded to release them to the public. The NSA used this particular photo as part of training material slides labeled Top Secret Communications Intelligence Don't Share with Foreign Entities. On the slide, the NSA stated the purpose of this operation, quote, such operations involving supply chain interdiction are some of the most productive operations in TAO because they preposition access points into hard target networks around the world, end quote. Hey, no judgments here. If I'm running my country's hacker group charged with penetrating our frenemies networks, this is exactly what I would do. The point is that if the U.S. is doing it, so is every major foreign power worth their salt in the hacking department. And I'm looking at you, China, Russia. When John Kindervog, the man who formalized the zero trust concept back in 2010, said to assume that your networks are already compromised, this is one example of what he was talking about. I was the Palo Alto Network's chief security officer when all of the Snowden stuff hit the fan. And we had international customers who, quite frankly, demanded to know what we were doing to prevent this kind of in-route tampering operation for our own equipment. 
We had an entire team dedicated to putting up roadblocks that made this way more difficult to accomplish. Everything from manufacturing our own products, meaning we didn't farm it out to cheaper foreign entities, to using special colorized seals on all of the locking screws that secured the hardware boxes and made it obvious if somebody tampered with them, to using colorized electronic components that you couldn't just buy out of Radio Shack. But if I can generalize here, there are really three types of supply chain attacks security executives need to consider. The first is just inbound widgets. Every organization, commercial, academic, and government purchases supplies from outside entities. In the world of Internet of Things, that is one avenue a TAO-like organization might try to penetrate, like the Cisco operation. The second is software supply chain. Everybody is running software today that we have agreed can be automatically updated with the latest patches and features. Think SolarWinds or the MeDoc accounting software that the Russians leveraged against Ukraine. And finally, for those organizations that make products, either software or hardware, what do you do to protect the manufacturing and content delivery pipeline so that your customers trust you to deliver uncorrupted products? Meaning... If you're Microsoft regularly updating your operating system software or Siemens building hardware programmable logic devices or PLDCs, how do you protect your customers from the Russians, the Chinese, and the U.S. inserting malicious code into your software and hardware products? These are all big jobs. Any one of them could probably consume an entire team full-time. But since all of them directly impact the probability that the organization might be materially impacted due to one of these attack vectors, does that mean that the CSO should have overall responsibility to protect against them? Let's find out. My name is Rick Howard. You are listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. I've invited two security executives who are quite familiar with all three supply chain attack categories. The first is an old friend of mine and a regular at the hash table, Ann Johnson, Microsoft's corporate VP on security, compliance, and identity. And the second is an old Army buddy of mine, Ted Wagner. He and I worked together when I ran the Army CERT back in the early 2000s. And he was my deputy several years later when I was the CISO for Task, a small Beltway bandit company here in D.C. Today, he's a big and important CISO in his own right at SAP National Security Services. My little baby is all grown up and and safe in China. I started out by asking Ann to describe just how different the CISO role is today compared to what it was just 10 years ago. CISOs today are so different than CISOs 20, 25 years ago. When CISOs were largely focused on policy, then you had IT that actually ran the systems. Maybe the CISO would be able to stand up a SOC. Maybe they'd have some joint accountability for the network admins but really, really different type of um, environment that we're in today. And I do see more centralization of 
both systems and control and security architecture and security engineering existing within the CISO function. As a matter of fact, if anything, we're being we're asking them to do way too much today, right? We're asking them to be policy experts, privacy experts, to understand compliance and also to understand security. And by the way, that security is on-premises, that security is in the cloud, that security is hybrid, it might have multiple cloud providers. So we're asking an awful lot of the CISO function as it exists today And the final thing I would say is they need to be very, very articulate in communicating with the board, right, and telling the board of directors and very senior executives the risk profile of the business, communicating with them about what they need, communicating about things that could fundamentally cause harm to the business. And it takes a really unique and special person today to fulfill that CISO role. Ted and I commiserated about how easy we had it just seven years ago when we were working as the CISO and deputy CISO at TASC. I'm the corporate CISO, but I also have supervision of the customer-facing cloud. A CISO back in the day when we were just worried about the corporate network, now I'm worried about development. I'm worried about a, a very large cloud footprint that federal customers are in. If it was just the corporate network, it'd be easy. When you look at the SolarStorm campaign in terms of the intrusion kill chain model, where the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, or SVR, compromised the SolarWinds company and inserted malicious code into the software update mechanism, you realize that the supply chain attack wasn't the kill chain step that caused the damage. The damage came after lateral movement and the compromise of administrator credentials needed for the authorization of access tokens to cloud resources, which, by the way, nobody was watching. Which begs the question, Even if you were a victim of the SolarStorm campaign, if you had a robust zero-trust strategy deployed, would you have been okay? Isn't it true that the subversion of the SolarWinds software update mechanism, while scary, is not the major problem here? The real problem is that we didn't protect our critical assets, namely their authorization credentials for cloud resources. I asked Ted if he thought zero-trust was a good strategy here. I'm a big supporter of zero-trust. I think it's a combination of things. How does a CISO sleep at night? It's not because of one thing that uh, the team does or two things that the team does. It's in aggregate all the, the things that you put in place. So Edo 2.1x uh, implementation to protect ports and accessing your network, requiring a certificate to authenticate the device, multi-factor authentication as part of your identity management, restricting access to anything that does not have uh, a valid reason for accessing your environment. And then having a lot of detection capability around your perimeter at the endpoint. I think it's in in aggregate that you gain security. It's not one thing. It's not a great analyst looking for the adversary. It's a lot of things programmatically in place that complement each other. And Zero Trust is a good model, and and I, I think you can only expound upon that. I asked Anne about some of the things she is recommending to CISOs about improving their zero trust posture, which might have stopped this solar storm campaign. That's a really hard question. I think if you see any anomalous behavior on your computer, immediately post update. Some of the things are not obvious. You would never see it. So if you have good malware detection everywhere, if you're actually doing zero trust, if you're actually looking, interrogating every transaction, let's say you do get a bad update from somebody. There's something happening in your network environment. One of the um, security researchers, I can't remember who it was, but he mentioned that the attackers have your security stack and they're testing against it. 
So one of the things that we saw in SolarWinds across a large customer base is that they figured out how to get some of the endpoint detection solutions to throw off low-fi or informational events. They flew under the radar. One thing we're telling folks is if you're seeing hundreds of low-fi or informational events across a set range of IPs in a certain period of time, that should signal something to your SOC and your machine learning engine. Whatever you're using to aggregate signal needs to be smart enough not just to take medium and high-priority events. So understand that the bad actors are doing all their OPSEC against your current security tools, and they know how to defeat them to a certain extent, right? Everybody has anti-tampering. Everyone improves their anti-tampering all the time. But they know how to get the right signal sent because they know how your sock works too. That's the problem. They've done so much reconnaissance, they understand us really well. So you need to change the playing field to the extent of it's like the Sun Tzu of cyber war, right? You need to change the playing field so that you're looking for things that they don't expect you to be looking for. And automation is the one thing that will help you in doing that because it should be able to aggregate that kind of signal and if you're getting that type of anomalous detection, even if it's low-fi in a certain period of time in your environment, that should be a flag. Globally, people are consolidating vendors, not just for financial reasons, but for security and control and, and even risk reasons. One of the customers I was talking to, and I really thought she, uh, she put it in good perspective. She said, you know, we do a lot of talk about controls in our vendor surveys. Are you using MFA? We'll just keep using MFA as an example. But And she said, we need to actually get a lot more precise in what we're asking the vendors. It's not a, are you using MFA? Is is the person that's accessing my environment using MFA 100% of the time? She said, and then I need to work with my systems people to make sure we're requiring it. It's not just me enough to ask the vendor, are they doing it? She said, we're not closing the gap to see if our systems are even requiring some of the things that the vendor survey says they're doing. And I thought that was really important Both Ann and Ted work for commercial companies who provide software updates to their customers across the internet. Ted has the direct responsibility of securing that delivery pipeline. We sell and support and deliver SAP software in the cloud. And so we leverage the SAP software development program. But here recently, we've started developing our own software in-house to deliver to customers. We have a segment which is called NS2 Mission, which is done directly for customers. But now we are making it more commercially available. And as part of developing that process to deliver software to customers, we mapped it all out. And I was integral in assessing and approving for release based off security criteria, new software. We recently made available a product called Cloud Mixer that I oversaw the security assessment and make some determination of our delivery model. That's in conjunction with other stakeholders, as you can imagine, but very much integral in the assessing and securing of its distribution. The model that we're looking at is to deliver as a cloud-based solution. So software as a service. But we also do like the web application, web application scans, and and then we do review of how it is delivered within the infrastructure that's presented. So access controls, identity, you mentioned identity, uh, are all those things proper and meeting our security posture requirements. If you have been in the industry for more than two seconds, you're completely familiar with the Microsoft Windows software update system. Ann says that Microsoft leadership has rightfully identified their software update program 
as one of their crown jewels and has provided a lot of resources towards it to ensure their customers can trust it. She refers to that pivotal moment in Microsoft history when in January 2002, Bill Gates, the then Microsoft chairman and chief software architect, sent a memo to all employees that turned Microsoft around on a dime to focus on security. He called it trustworthy computing. And by the way, wouldn't it be great almost 20 years later if all board chairmen would do something similar? Here's Ann. Well, it's because we have one of the largest software update supply chains in the world. With the start of trustworthy computing, which was, I think, 2000, 2001, is when Bill wrote his memo. We rallied around it to make sure that people had confidence. I don't have the stats in front of me, but the automatic update rate is quite high. The word the Windows Update team uses, and I love it, they say we are maniacal about it. We are absolutely, and we have been, we recognize the threats there pretty early. And we have actually been maniacal about how we produce our updates, how we do the final build for updates, how we publish the updates, how we make sure the updates are signed, how the updates are downloaded, because we can just imagine that type of wholesale attack. We talk about our software development life cycle and our secure software development life cycle. We talk about the different ways that we test the code, how we protect the process. And it's not just protecting the development process, but it's protecting the process from when it goes from dev to when it goes for production. And then the moment we click that update, we push it out. There's a whole security process that's built around that, checking it every step of the way. So that supply chain aspect is real organizations need to be realistic about it. You don't want to be in a position, though, where you're not updating because updates give you security patches and they, they fix real problems. I asked Ted about what he told customers concerning the extra links that SAP goes through to protect its software update pipeline. We have about half a dozen products that have FedRAMP authorizations so that we're delivering to Department of Defense customers and federal and civilian agencies products like SuccessFactors and SAP Analytic Cloud. Well, the way we deliver is through a cloud delivery model, software as a service. Uh, we do support on-prem customers, but they leverage the SAP software distribution model, which is somewhat similar to the Microsoft model, but you connect to a support portal and you are able to download software updates through a uh, authentication mechanism. Ted points out a relatively new change in our community. Usually, the common notion in the cybersecurity industry is that unless you're selling cybersecurity tools, the idea of security doesn't sell. In other words, if you are selling a widget that provides contract services, let's say, the sales team usually doesn't lead with how secure the product is. Ted says that is absolutely changing for cloud-delivered services. In the line of business that I'm in, there's a huge demand for security. Our customers are screaming for it. We're seeing a lot of activity in the sales arena, especially around our cloud, because we uh, profess a higher security posture than commercially available software as a service. Security does sell. The sales staff loves it because they walk in the door and, and the first thing out of their mouth is security. The hard part is to follow up on those commitments. Security doesn't get any easier just because you put it on the organization's name. SAP National Security Services, that's nice, but there's a lot of work on the back end that's not always uh, glamorous to make sure that happened. 
Ann points out that securing the supply chain responsibility has not traditionally been given to the CISO in the past. But because of recent supply chain attacks, like SolarStorm that hit 18,000 potential victims, like the CodeCov attack that led to the compromise of security vendor Rapid7, and like the Russian Sandworm campaign against Medoc that led to many Ukraine critical infrastructure compromises, senior leadership is starting to turn their heads towards the CISO to take the ownership. I have seen people who are responsible for supply chain have not historically sat within the CISO function. I think you, you've seen that. They, they tend to sit somewhere in vendor management, and they tend to just get a checklist from the security office, and they don't, tend not to be technical people, right? And they're just they're going through their checklists. Now we're seeing, as you can imagine, right? Now we're seeing this wave of there must be technical supply chain folks that are actually completely aligned with the CISO function that are actually driving what the supply chain has to adhere to. And the, and the CISO is getting, and I think it's a good thing, Rick, the CISO is getting, I never want to use the word power because people think that's a negative word, but they're getting more responsibility. They're getting more accountability for that supply chain. And here's what that's going to drive. That's going to mean that those checklists that vendors have to sign off on, I, I think they're going to be more grounded in risk as opposed to grounded in here's some compliance standards we need to meet. Now it's like, okay, where are actually the threats? Where's the attack surface? Let's make sure those checklists are actually, and those attestations are actually grounded in where the real risk is. Ted says that he has been given more responsibility for at least the software supply chain, but he can see where other organizations might not want to consolidate everything under the CISO. We had a working group to develop the process to develop and release software within NS2. We came to the recognition that I had to lead the security assessment of that and the approval of that. So that wasn't an arbitrary decision. If you brought out a supply chain in total, I think there's still a conversation going on about that. And I think it's just because of the complexity of it. The CISO in general is properly positioned and assuming properly resourced and endorsed can do it. But I also know that Organizations can be very different culturally in the way they're organized and based off the kind of work that they do. So I don't want to make a global statement because I think people do it differently. I think that it's perfectly good in what they do, and it may be different from organization to organization. If you're building hammers and shovels, you know, that's one type of supply chain versus if you're a software company where everything is in the ether and software, and it's a lot more dynamic. That's a different kind of culture, a different kind of organization, different requirements. So I think it does vary from organization to organization. I agree with both Ann and Ted. This transition of supply chain responsibilities is just starting and may not be the right choice for every organization. But in general, what I believe should be the case is that if the thing that your company is buying or the thing that your company is producing is designed to connect to your network or your customer's network in some fashion, then the security of the thing should be the CSO's responsibility. And that's a wrap. As always, if you agree or disagree with anything I have said or anything our guests have said, hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter and we can continue the conversation there. Next week is Memorial Day week here in the United States, and the CSO Perspectives team is taking the week off to honor the U.S. soldiers who have died in American wars. But don't be disappointed. We have a special treat for you instead. 
the Cybersecurity Canon Project has announced the author selectees for the 2021 Hall of Fame Awards. And you all know that I'm a huge advocate for reading in general. All kinds, really. I particularly like horror and fantasy. But specifically, we all need to read more good cybersecurity books. And I emphasize the good there because there are a lot of published bad cybersecurity books in circulation. And I have been involved in the Cybersecurity Canon Project since the beginning in an attempt to find the books that all of us should have read by now. The result of all of that is that I will be interviewing the winning authors during breaks in the CSO Perspective schedule. And the first break is next week. Perry Carpenter is coming to the hash table to talk about his cybersecurity canon Hall of Fame book, Transformational Security Awareness, What Neuroscientists, Storytellers, and Marketers Can Tell Us About Driving Secure Behaviors. You won't want to miss that. The CyberWire CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions, remixed by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman who also does the show's mixing, sound design, and original score. And I am Rick Howard. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO PRO to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe.